Hi, this is Vani Estes, and we're doing short takes on tech live at the IFPA Global Show in Orlando. And so exciting to be here and to talk to all of my 15 company guests that I'll have during two days. Great to be here live. Please check out my podcast, Fresh Takes on Tech, um, where you can find on the IFPA website or any place you listen to podcasts for longer versions of this. But today I'm having great live conversations. And so we are sitting here today with Mike. And Mike, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little about your company? Thanks, Ivani. Great to be here. Uh, my name is Mike Meinhardt. I lead sales for a company called ProVision, which is an ag tech company focused on food safety and quality assurance. Excellent. And where are you located? Who are your type of customers? We are uh, based in Canada, in Calgary, but we have an office in Chicago, Colorado, and Michigan. And our type of companies are generally grower, packer, shipper in that small to medium-sized companies. So, uh, you know, the big, big companies, the Driscolls, the Doles, the Chiquitas, tend to have home-built software systems to handle their paper and food safety QC, PM, uh, those sorts of things. Once you go down to sort of half a billion dollars and smaller, that becomes too expensive to spend five, six, seven million on a, on a unique system. So we have a platform that then uh, does everything what a home-built system would do, but it makes it approachable for a, a company that maybe doesn't have, you know, a $4 million budget for new software. And what is the sales cycle normally? I mean, you probably have to spend a lot of time with people yeah. so that they understand what you have. And how does that work? Sales cycle will vary dramatically. If a company is looking for the solution and they're doing an RFQ and, and it can be very fast. A couple things slow down the sales cycle. One is the audit cycle. So if a company has their audit scheduled for typically audits have to be during harvest because the auditors want to see harvesting as part of the process. Most companies, and I wouldn't do it either, would be crazy to change systems three months before an audit and be on paper for nine months of your year and, uh, and digital for three months. But post-audit, that's when that's the sweet spot. So we're there right now. In North America, companies are basically through harvest, uh, if they're not very close, through their audit season and now looking to implement new programs between now and planting season. So what are you doing at the show? What what are you looking at? What do you hope to get out of it? Why after, are you here? After 30 years in food, I, I, one of the things I love is sort of what are the challenges in an industry? And in produce, you keep hearing about water and labor as being two major, issue, and, and major issues. And water and labor and water and labor. Water and labor, and labor <laughs> water and labor. The third thing that I think is getting missed is decommoditization. And I'm concerned about produce versus other food in the ability or the focus on decommoditizing. And what I mean by that is we've had some great decommoditization processes in produce. So, so to me, organic is decommoditizing produce because the price goes up and people are willing to pay more. As that's got bigger, I see the push coming downwards on that. And the even prices, on organic. Right? Yeah, even yeah. on organic. Then there's small ideas, like maybe it was five years ago, uh, the um, cotton candy grapes came out. Yep. And if you bought cotton candy grapes that first year, you know, you were paying double what you pay for regular grapes Happily. Um, and quite happy to do it, <laughs> you know. And so the, you know, uh, halos, I think did that at one point and, and then I think they get pushed down. But to me, from a grower, packer, shipper standpoint, what can we do in produce to decommoditize a commodity? And what that does is it motivates and inspires consumers to pay more money for the product. If the consumer is motivated and inspired, the retailer will be willing to charge more, be willing to pay more. And then you start to create that profitability gap, which may help you handle other problems like water and labor. 
But if you're getting squeezed, squeezed, squeezed on every end, and then you've got other problems that, that at that end, the water and labor and other things, it's tough to solve problems when you're being squeezed financially. Hmm. So I, that's what I look at. So in food, you can imagine, you know, one of the examples I like to use is, you know, Bonnie and I, you and I are close to the same age. And, you know, when we grew up and we got ice cream, mom would buy the big bucket, that big tub of plastic tub of ice cream. You had vanilla and chocolate. Then there was innovation in Neapolitan. And boy, yeah, we yeah. get excited yeah. about Neapolitan. And <laughs> I would yell at my sister for scooping out all the chocolate and leaving a <laughs> row of orange and, or uh, strawberry and vanilla. Well, what's happened since then? It went from that, that product, I don't think anyone buys anymore. Now you might buy Kit Kat ice cream, Arrow ice cream, Rolo ice cream, or in the next level of decommoditization, that local, in a tiny little tub, you get that premium, premium ice cream. So you, you went to haagen and then you go to something that's even more local. And people just keep paying more and more for less and less as you go through that cycle. You could use that example in wine and beer, and like you can go through so many different products and, and, uh, and find it. What are we doing in produce to get there? That typically has to be short-term solutions are packaging, sponsorships, who's going to be the official NFL, uh, you know, the official orange of the NFL or a produce company of the NFL. Like there, there's some short-term kind of plays, but really it's got to come from product, a better product that tastes better, that is, is noticeably different. You know, you're talking to a guy who one time, my wife still gives it to me about this, spent $129 on a cantaloupe. What? Um, and I would do it again. And, and I saw this Where in a store. That? It was a store called Save on Foods in Canada. And it was a Japanese cantaloupe. And the story, and it was packaged exactly like you would imagine a Japanese, uh, beautifully Beautiful. like you, something in yeah. Japan. But what they do is they clip off every flower off of a plant and they let a plant grow one cantaloupe. And the theory is, is all of that sun and energy and nutrition goes into the one cantaloupe. So it'll be the best tasting piece of fruit you've ever had. So I'm at a store working. I text my wife. I say, invite the neighbors over. I just bought a cantaloupe. I left it. didn't respond to any of her. <laughs> and she's, <laughs> she's like, her what? head spinning. Yeah. Like, what are we talking about? Yeah. And I said, get some good white wine. And yeah. I show up home with $120. And it was the greatest piece of fruit I've ever tasted. Wow. It was dripped down your chin, juicy with flavor. Like, it was, it was perfect. And listen, I'm not going to buy a $129 cantaloupe every week at the grocery store. But I probably would once a year. And so that's an extreme example. But what do you I do? I wonder with, what, how they got that retailer to carry that. So that was an opening of a store. And the retailer wanted a couple new cool things just to make a scene, right? So they bought 50 of them. They were walking around sampling them to the people in the store. Ooh. So they were telling the story. That's yeah. what got me. Yeah. Um, I bit that fish, fish hook. I swallowed that fish hook. And, uh, and people were buying them, though. They discounted them to like 99 bucks or something. And you thought you were getting a deal. But still, <laughs> yeah. like it was insane. But it was fantastic. I've spent $2 a strawberry on a pint of strawberries for it because they were, it was again, a, a, a Japanese variety that you can't get in North America that's indoor grown. And, and, you know, and a pint of strawberries with eight, I spent $16. Um, they were fantastic. So um, how do we as an industry do that? Like what, what do you see your part is on that and... and so to me, there's a few ways to decommoditize um, very short term hits. You know, like I said, you know, who's the uh, you know, you've saw that a few years ago where I forget which produce company sponsored. I forget if or, or had Sesame Street or somebody like that on their mm -hmm. packaging. OK, so there's there's short term little plays that can help out. But those are little hits where you really need to do it is historically in product. What's the new product? But I think in the new world, it's being done via data and information. 
And consumers are, or a subset of consumers, are becoming much more interested in where did my product come from? How was it grown? Who grew it? What are the details? And verify it, please. Like, don't just, don't just say, this was born in, Cal- grown, grown in California by a real cool family. Yeah. Verify what's happening. And if they can scan a QR code and get the details, you know, what's your water source? So it's kind what? of creating that pull with yeah, consumers, right? Exactly. Yeah. And there's a subset that's growing and that subset overlaps with organic that, you know, that organic consumer who's saying, okay, well, not just organic. I want to know the story. I want to know the details. I want to know everything about this product. And retailers should be asking that. Um, often they don't, but they should be. And I think that's where we're going. And that's where my company comes in, the data around growing. And how do you track that information? If you're tracking it on paper, it's lost to you. You can't tell anybody what's happening. But if you track it digitally, you can start knowing your own information, analyzing your information, sharing your own information, and benefiting from your own information. So to me, that's the North Star. There's a whole bunch of benefits and steps to get to the North Star. But that's where I think produce needs to go to find a new way to decommoditize. Great. Well, we have a minute left. Okay. And so I want to ask you just quickly, you were yeah. part of our accelerator this year. We were, yeah. And it was great to have you. Great to have you in Immersion Week. But can you talk in 30 seconds what yeah. that experience was like for you? So from beginning to end, it was unbelievable. It starts with Produce 101. And so anybody who is new to the produce industry or, I mean, I've been here forever and I learned a ton of things. So it starts with Produce 101, which is fantastic. That gives you the foundation to tackle the produce industry. From there, I loved the mentors. I had uh, a, a great mentor who was so supportive and helped introduce us to people and got involved with our platform. I've heard from other Accelerator members, they had a similar experience. And it just gives you that, A, we're gonna build a platform for you. B, we're gonna partner you up with a leader in the industry. And then we're gonna help you over a six month, nine month period, sort of evolve and, and fly. And, and for us, it was fantastic. I would recommend it to anyone. And I've been hearing the same things from, from uh, the others that I've got to know really well. Great. Excellent. That's it. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. (laughs) Good morning and welcome to Short Takes on Tech. I'm recording podcasts live at the IFPA show in Orlando, and I'm doing 15 short conversations with exciting companies here at the show and having great conversations so far. These will be um, played live and then on the app, and then I'll put them out again um, on my podcast. So please follow the podcast, Fresh Takes on Tech, as well. And so for my next conversation, I have Karen Long, and I will turn Turn it over to you, Karen, to introduce yourself and your company. Great, Bonnie. Thanks so much. I am absolutely thrilled to be here with you and on the podcast. My name is Karen Long, and I head up the sales and business development division here at iFood Decision Sciences, iFood DS. iFood DS is a SaaS software provider, and we not only provide web-based mobile applications to support the digital data capture of food safety and quality data, But we also have a cloud-based service that provides an opportunity for other tech providers to import and share data back and forth to really get everything into a single source of truth for our partners, which span across the entire supply chain. So those who use our applications or share data into our applications so they can leverage our analytics platform might be growers, packers, shippers, coolers, processors, our retail distribution partners, and even food service. 
Excellent. So in this, um, we were talking before we started recording, just your background and kind of working mm -hmm. in digitizing different industries. Where do you think we are in the produce industry and in, in this whole process? Yeah, it's uh, digital transformation is, you know, a, a, a buzzword or a buzz phrase that comes up quite a bit. And, and that's been my experience. And, um, you know, if we if we kind of boil it down to four main areas around transformation and we first we have to start if we're going to move in through digital transformation with digitizing the data. And so that stage is typically called digitalization. And as I moved into this industry, I was amazed at how it really spanned the gamut. But largely, most of the industry was tr still trying to figure out how did they want to digitalize their processes, their efforts. And then get off of spreadsheets and text messages, right? <laughs> spreadsheets, text messages. And, you know, I, I joked about it in another interview that I had done, but somebody had said, oh, we're totally digitalized. Everything's in Excel. And I thought, <laughs> I thought, OK, well, it's on a computer. At it's, least. It's, it's on. I mean, you know, that is st stage one. So we don't yeah. want to pick poke too much fun. It's better yeah. than just having it in a binder somewhere in the back room and you can't access it. And so I think the industry is largely still at this first stage of digitalization. But then we see others who are far down the path. You know, they've really adopted this disruptive technology, as we'll call it, because it's really disrupting in the industry. It's looking at new ways of doing things. And um it, and that's all across the board. It could be, you know, we look at our partners at, at Eurofins um, right now doing some really cool things with their rapid response testing. And um, so in the environmental monitoring and food safety world, there's some amazing new advancements in technology. But a lot of that still sits in silos. There's not a lot of connectivity between those efforts, you know, whether it's... Within a company or within the industry? Within or? the whole industry. So yeah. if we look at, you know, somebody who's moved off of Excel and they're using iFood DS, I mean, they could be using any of these applications to digitally capture their food safety or quality data as their product moves in their ecosystem and onto their vendors or their suppliers or their customers. And they could have adopted a technology. But if they are not holistically looking at the data about the product as it's moving from their ecosystem and on, we're really missing an opportunity to, whether it's reducing cost and complexity by you know, reducing redundancy of that effort. You know, I captured quality data and now I'm going to send it to you and now you got to do it all over again. So it's not really helping the next guy downstream to reduce either um, or to, to leverage the benefit of this disruptive tech. Right. So as I had mentioned in the microbial, they're doing all this really cool testing. But if I have to manually go back in and reenter it, it's going to take me more time and effort. So why wouldn't the laboratory kind of come together with the effort to capture the data? So those are some of the projects that iFoodDS is really focused on is saying, let's connect this information together. And we're seeing it impacts the industry kind of in two major areas. One I just mentioned. You know, reducing redundancy is going to take some cost and complexity out of the out of the whole effort to transform. The other one is really kind of some things that our keynote talked about yesterday when we were talking about improving sustainability efforts or being able to accomplish those, reducing food waste. We look at as you know, kind of an example to put the pin in this is that iFoodDS technology with our partners in Australia who have been really focused on this transformation effort for some time. We look at suppliers, growers, coolers like Perfection Fresh and NNA Group and Greenskin Avocado who work to capture data in the iFood tool, their quality data. Product comes in and product comes out. But then they're sending this product off to 
retailers. And we look at Aldi and Woolworths, who are iFood partners, who are, again, capturing quality data at the receiving, at distribution. But by enabling our grower packer shippers to share the quality information in advance of the shipment, we're reducing a lot of the rejections and the waste. So it's taking a ton of waste out of the industry just in that stage alone. That's great. But then as it moves through the distribution center, why don't we reach outside of the iFood ecosystem and we connect with the National Food Bank of Australia and we notify them if there's a product on the dock immediately that needs to be donated and get into the mouths of people who need it. And it's dramatically increased the volume of products that gets to them faster and retains that shelf life. So that's just one example of how through partnering together and connecting the dots across the supply chain, where iFood's really focused on saying, this isn't just a one piece of tech for one company. We've got to be able to be willing to share the data to really activate all of the benefits that can be achieved through the transformation. So as a company, how do you how do you do that? Because the value really is out in you know, if you look at the supply chain like nodes, it's it's across all the nodes. And so if if the grower shipper is your customer, can you partner with a retailer or sell to a retailer to pull it through? Like, how, how do you get across the supply chain? You know, and it's been in the last, I'd probably say, six to nine months where we really feel like we're cracking this a little bit. And I'll, and I'll tell you what I think's driving it, positive or negative, and I think it's a, created a really unique opportunity is this regulatory push. Okay, so we have this really cool opportunity in regulatory, you know, with 204 coming in traceability, that it's really pushing the industry to achieve step number one that I talked about, right? So it's the digitalization. So with the the FDA coming in and mandating that everybody keeps a digital record of the product as it's moving through the supply chain, we start seeing people raise their hand and say, I got to figure out how to get digitized and get everything digital. So it's helping that. But then... As we move down the path, you see at the downstream, it's the retailers and food service companies that are stepping in saying, hey, we now need you to be able to share this information with us in advance of a shipment. Doesn't really matter, you know, iFood's position, it doesn't matter if you want to share it in a ASN or an EDI or RFID or even blockchain ledger. It doesn't, you know, we're there to help again, as I had mentioned at the beginning, take that data in and then be able to share it up as needed. But the request to share it as needed is going to have to come downstream. And we haven't really seen, outside of a few retailers, that push. So as those retailers are pushing, we're seeing more people saying, wait, I can share it with you. And, you know, I have iFood to help me do that. So that's helped us really gain some traction. But even in the previous example that I made when we talked about some of the integrations that we're working on with our laboratory partners, it's been the processor who said, you know, we we work with a global grower, packer, cooler processor for berries and who said, hey, listen, we don't want this manual effort. We really need to reduce the cost and complexity, and we don't want to have to have duplicate entry of stuff. So we need you to go integrate with the tech companies. So it's a little bit of both. We have downstream large enterprise pushing the growers, packers, suppliers to figure out ways to work together, which is called the synchronization of the data. And then we have within an ecosystem those partners pushing their tech providers to come together. So it's great opportunity for all of us to to jump on this wave. It's also a big opportunity for us to miss. 
because with this regulatory push, everybody could get greedy and go out and say, buy my tool, buy my tool. I'm going to help you be 204 compliant. Only use me. And then we're all stuck. So iFoods kind of said, you can use our tool, but if you use somebody else, let's make it come together for the, you know, to be able to achieve this initiative. So there are a million things we could talk about. I'm going to have you on, you know, for an so hour. So fun. But, um, but let me just wrap up with this one. We really, um, IFPA really appreciates you being here at the show. And what, what will make a successful show for you? You know, just everything that I just talked about, I, I want people to come to our booth, the, the good, the bad, the ugly. I think we're in the 1200 area. You'll see our booth over there. Bring your challenges. Is it within your ecosystem that you need your tech providers to come together? Bring it to me. Introduce me to your tech provider. Say, iFood, I don't want to use your application to capture my food safety data. I really like my ERP system. It does great. Can you connect with my ERP to be able to upload and transmit all that traceability data to the next guy? You know, I, bring that problem. If you're, a, if you're a retail food service partner, come to us. Let us noodle on it and figure it out together. It's not a hard sales pitch to buy an iFood mobile application. If you need one, we got one. Yeah. If you have a problem that you're trying to solve in, in data aggregation, using analytics, trying to be more predictive about your product, bring that. Let's figure out how we work together for the greater good to make it happen and still allow each member of the supply chain to maintain their competitive differentiation. So a good show for me is just let's talk. Bring me your, bring me your good, bad, and ugly, and we'll figure it out. Great. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank I really you, appreciate Bonnie. It. It's been great. Good afternoon. This is Vani Estes, and I'm your host for Short Takes on Tech. We are recording live from the IFPA Global Show in Orlando, and this is my last conversation with uh, one of my favorite people. So uh, we will start the conversation about the company and what Diane is up to. So Diane, I will turn it over to you to introduce yourself and tell us what you're up to. Thank you, Bonnie. So my name is Diane Weatherington, and I'm CEO of iDecision Sciences, also known as IDS. And I started the company in 2009, and we focused on the food industry. We are a risk management consulting and software solutions company. Our focus really is on supply chain issues, particularly those that are, I'd say, well, very problematic for the industry, such as food safety, food security, and food availability. So what have you seen change over the years that you've been doing this in the industry? <laughs> well, so technology-wise, one of the reasons or one of the first companies that I started that was part of IDS was a software company, which was uh, later spun off of IDS. It's iFood DS now, iFood Decision Sciences. Uh, but the early days, what we found is we were focused on moving away from paper, the use of paper, and documenting the food safety data collection. And one of the things that I saw after really the 2006 outbreak in, in spinach, E. coli outbreak in spinach, was how paper-based this industry is and started working with industry partners on software solutions. But the interesting thing was it was a lack of uh, technology to be able to capture that information. So it was in the early stages of iPads and smartphones, and a lot of the workers in the field did not have those devices. So the companies were very reluctant to give them to the, to the individuals. So fast forward a few years, and what you saw was the adoption rate because of the smartphones. 
And because even a, a, a worker who had a fourth grade or a, a fourth to seventh grade education could enter the data into it because they'd been emailing or, or FaceTiming their family members. So they were up to speed on that technology very quickly. Hmm. Interesting. I can imagine that's a, that's a change. So who are your customers now? They really are customers throughout the supply chain. So I'm working with a number of global processors today, also some grower shippers and retailers. Hmm. And how long is the sales process like when you go in to talk to someone and um, do they understand what they need or how much of it is an education? How does that conversation go? Well, that's why most of the business comes from consulting or has in the past, because uh, what you're typically involved in are industry issues. When I've consulted, we are involved in industry issues and we identify problems and then the companies can self-identify and say, yes, I have that issue and they invite us in. And that's a much easier sales cycle. But as you know, in this industry, technology sales are very slow. So you could be looking at a, at least a probably a nine-month uh, sale process on the retail side and food service side and lower on the other ends of the supply chain. Diane was a chair of the tech committee last year and is a valuable member of the tech council this year that we're revamping and getting going. And uh, we had a meeting this week and had some really interesting conversations where we just opened it up to a bunch of different technology companies that all have different kinds of services. And we just had an open conversation about what is it like to be a tech company in this industry and what are some of the big issues? So um, I wondered what your thoughts were about that conversation. Well, it was, it was very interesting and I'd have to say all of us had um, <laughs> input into that conversation having worked in tech since, as I said, 2000, really 2006 in the industry. But it's, it's complicated. It's very unique because there's so many different commodities. And so if you develop a technology, in many cases, you have to consider the uniqueness of, of each commodity. So if you're in robotics, for example, you're looking at software or you're looking at different configurations based on the commodities. So that's, that's one issue. The other issue is that it's... Uh, it's a very low margin business. So companies, when they're looking at technology, they want something that's going to generate new sales or expanded sales for them. And the, the idea of a cost reduction, while it's attractive, it's not nearly as compelling as increasing revenues. So those are some of the big issues that we see. Mm, that's a really excellent point. And I, I think I've talked about this. I was in a board meeting the other day and they were talking about how if, if growers use this product, it would increase their yield by 20%. So someone, a, a VC said to me, you know, well, wouldn't every grower just stand in line to get that? And I said, do you know how many people are telling them that they're going to increase their yield by 20%? It's impossible, you know? And so I think that's how, especially from people outside of the industry, they come in with that and say, look mm -hmm. at our data. We did five trials, you know, <laughs> and it says that it's going to increase your yield. So I think part of it is a way that we interact you know, with the industry and, and what kind of promises we make, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the venture capital world is, is very difficult in our industry because the expected return, you know, looking at a three-year return and uh, exit strategy is, is very, very difficult. This is a long-term play. Yeah. So what do you think the other options can be as far as funding for companies to get going? I really think there needs to be some type of internal industry group 
whether it's an association or a group of like-minded companies that come together. An analogy could be uh, consumer or Center for Produce Safety, where they came together to solve a major issue, and they funded it, and then they went out for other funding. But if you had a group of like-minded companies that are developing a technology solution, I think that would be really helpful and maybe an early start. Because you really need not just the, the technology piece, but you need the buy-in of the entire supply chain if you're going to pull off many of these solutions. Yeah. What would, a, what would something like that look like? like what, what would be another? Are you thinking a solution type or a topic area? Or? I think you could probably pull in more than one solution. I mean, there's a lot of work going on right now with robotics. We know robotics is a very, very long-term play. And there's a great deal of funding in that area, and you have some manufacturers who might be attractive to it. There are other solutions that involve the seed companies, and they're willing to fund solutions. Uh, frankly, food safety has never gotten much outside interest because it's a constantly evolving issue. and. We keep changing our commodities. We keep changing the way that we eat our food as consumers, and so it's, we're constantly generating new issues. Uh, but, but I do think you could look for a group, like I said, of like-minded companies who could come together, and maybe it's a yield issue. Maybe it's a food waste issue. You know, whatever it is, it should be a supply chain solution. Yeah. No, that's a great idea. I think... Finding money for those types of things is always a challenge, but I think looking for some funding like from the government, I think we're seeing a lot more from like the USDA and we just, IFPA just got the $15 million grant that is going to get sliced up into so many, many pieces, but right. but I think there there is some funding issues like that and I think family offices, especially if you start looking around, you know, things like water and sustainability and, and some of those issues, I think so a lot of family offices that are have more patient money are stepping up and so maybe that's a place to look as well. Absolutely. I think there are a number of locate number of areas you could look for funding that is government, yes, it's a good starting point, uh, but probably private money. Yeah. And I think issues like water, you know, I've been try I've been thinking about water because it is such a huge issue in California and we're becoming acutely aware of of that issue. And, you know, we could lose our industry in California if we can't, don't come up with some solutions. But when you think about it, you know, whenever I think about it, I think, well, okay, we just need more water. But when you look at it from a technology perspective of what, you know, it could be a genetic solution, it could be some kind of robotic solution, you know, it can be indoor ag, it can be like a bunch of different solutions. And so if you can coalesce around an issue like that, that might be a way to go. I think water is, is incredibly important. We know right now in the state of Arizona, there are issues for the winter months and water allocations, and that's going to be a huge hit to the industry. But I also think, too, looking at where our food's grown in the United States and globally and realizing the food supply and, and what issues we may have uh, as governments, as consumers, and trying to find solutions to that as well. I mean, recognizing we need to put money behind solving problems of companies where people retire and they go out of business and we don't have the farmers anymore. How do we make that sustainable? Well, 
unbelievably, we're out of time. But <laughs> wow, no, really? I know. <laughs> Let me ask you one one last question before we wrap up. So, what will make this a successful show for you? What are you hoping to get out of the next day and a half? I guess I can't say world peace. <laughs> yeah, you could, but I don't think we can deliver. <laughs> um, I just think being here to me is is overwhelming. I love seeing the technology companies and understanding what they're working on and of course seeing the produce innovations that every produce company here has and the, and the excitement around being in one place again, of course, after COVID. It's just being here. I mean, I just am grateful to be here again. Yeah, great. All right. Well, we will continue these conversations in many different ways, Diane. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Thank you very Thank much. You. You've been listening to Fresh Takes on Tech, a podcast from the International Fresh Produce Association. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you like what you've heard, please rate the show. That helps us keep delivering the latest on produce technology. Thank you for listening. Until next time.